Okay. How are you doing? Where are you? Are you in Oakland? I am in Oakland, yes. So you still got the sun there. We're, I'm in Chicago, so we got no sun. Oh, oh yeah, your sun is gone. I, I moved here from Chicago. You're kidding. No. I actually lived in DeKalb, Illinois. You know where DeKalb is? Of course I do. So, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> Oakland now. Um, I've been here for seven years. Congr that's nice. Well, you, I'm sure you don't miss the winners. How's that? Absolutely. <laughs> Not at all. Well, Maisha, so you know who I am and your family know who I am. I own uh, a liquor company, a wine and spirits company. Um, I have a whole bunch of brands, some current brands, some new ones coming. I started a series called Self Made. I think we're on season five now. I get to interview uh, and talk to, I but talk to celebrities in music, or, uh, arts, business, um, uh, sports, people that, that have created what I call influence in their own world. And mm -hmm. what I always lacked, and I can appreciate this idea, is confidence. And I, I always felt inspired by hearing the tough part of the story. Because mm -hmm. I the success side, so it always looked easy. So I try to focus yeah. on the, the part that sucked. And I think you have a quote, which I'll get to in a minute, but I think can appreciates. But that's where the series came from, self-made. Um, I love that. Where do, what does self-made mean to you? Ooh, you're starting with a heavy one. Yeah. No. Um, you know what? What's that? Oh. To me, self-made is just having an appreciation for the challenges on the journey that you took to got you where you are today, right? So self-made is just that, that gratitude, right? That, that practice of, of, of just thanksgiving for like relying on the challenges and the obstacles that kind of created and developed the um, experience where you are today. Self-made is that journey, that 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 hero's journey. So if you've read books like The Alchemist, if you read, I'll use that one, right? It's the hero's journey, right? It's like, oh, I can do this. I have this call to adventure. And then you fall down seven times, but you stand up eight. And so self-made is just this constant evolutionary journey of leaning into the discomfort of failure, but coming into self-actualization at the end of that. So, and I, I love what you just said, and there's so many parts I can pick up. Um, you said something, and I want to hear your own words describe what because I get it. But you said, don't focus on the struggle, focus on the journey. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Describe that. Yeah, so, you know, don't focus on the struggle, focus on the journey. Because you know what, as someone who's lived with depression and anxiety, um, it could be so easy to fall into that darkness, that, that just overwhelming feeling of failure that you can't even see success. And so when you focus on where am I going, where am I headed, and not being stuck in failure, you can actually use that moment of like self-inquiry to push, to push through. Um, and Will Smith said it best, just this notion and idea of failing fast, failing often, failing frequently. So if you keep going on your journey, 
then you are allowing the failure to push you and not be the obstacle from stopping you to move forward and on your path. So when, for, for me, I was 31 years old, I mm -hmm. lost for years, and what the hell do I want to do? Because, you know, everyone's got their nugget. For me, that was my issue. I don't know what the hell I want to do. So many ideas, and today, I don't know what it was. There's moments in my life like where I just said, okay, I got to pick something and I got to go forward. And that was the first moment. What was it for you where you're like, you know what? Something's got to change. I got to do something. Yeah. Oh, man, there's so many. I'm going to start with this. That moment for me, I was also in my early 30s, so about 34. Um, I wanted to end my life. And it was that moment where I was hospitalized in a mental health institution where I saw a text, I'll say it was a Bible, and I was like, I'm here for purpose. And that moment was the catalyst that actually drove me back to California for the last seven years and just helped me make a decision. And that decision was, okay, let's talk about mental health adv advocacy and be an activist and use your story to inspire others who may end up hospitalized, may be afraid to talk about that journey of what it's like to live with depression, but still thrive as an entrepreneur. And even here recently, it was, you know, people of color not having access to therapy or white folks not being aware of their privilege. All of that came from a story of pain. And that pain led me to the journey of purpose. And it all started, it'll be eight years ago in November when I was hospitalized. Do you do you think, for, and it's funny because I think of my my grandfather was like in the late nineties, and I always he always inspired me because, and I realize as you get older, the threshold of honesty, meaning your your ability to just be honest, just opens up. Yeah. To me, it's the same thing. Whether it's like your ability to speak the truth opens up. Was that for you eight years ago, that idea that, you know, I'm just going to let it out? It, it yep. breathe? Yep. That, that idea that if I just name that I live with depression and anxiety and just openly share it, it can help someone else on their journey. Like, that's what, what, what it was for me, Brett, just this notion of like, you know what, let me speak my truth. Getting closer to 35, I have, I'm also a single mom, I have kids, so hey. If my story touches one person's ears, right, like, and by me being honest and, like, speaking my truth, maybe someone will feel brave enough to speak theirs. Do, do you remember somebody that you speaking your truth, it affected, and you're like, you know what, this is what it is. Like, this is what it feels like to say this and to get somebody to react to what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, man. Um... I remember I was actually not speaking. I was listening to them speak their truth. And they were just sharing what it felt like to be part of the LGBT community, not having friends to lean on or support them, um, feeling super depressed. And then as I'm just listening to them and reflecting back and just building connection, they were like, you know what? For the first time in my life, I feel heard and I feel connected. It While it wasn't necessarily me like telling a story and like, you know, inspiring them, they they were inspired by the fact that I just listened and that I held space for them. 
did you, and we'll get into what you're doing now, but again, I'm yeah. curious about what inspires people to happiness. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. do you think they're the same thing, that ability to be honest, and then all of a sudden you click in, that honesty has made me happy and I can now do something with that? Yeah, absolutely. They are definitely interconnected. Honesty and happiness, absolutely. Because the more you're honest, Again, that's self-actualization. That's my new word of the week. <laughs> but the more you're honest with yourself, you begin to actualize a vision for yourself, right? And then you start to be more happy and you start to strive for the more opportunities and more people around you that speak to that, that allow you to be honest, that can lead to that feeling of happiness and, and transformation. Tell us, uh, so in your own words, how did Check Your Privilege start? Oh, okay. Uh, Check Your Privilege started two and a half years ago after an interaction with a friend who was a white woman. Um, and we had an interaction that really detrimentally affected my mental health. And so my friend was just like, most of my girlfriends, women of color, girl, you better throw them white women away. They're you just, just, you know, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're stressed out. Just get, get rid of it. And I was like, um, I don't know, because I'm a person that likes to use pain to power. And so I... um went to my therapist, did my own inner work around anti-blackness. And then I said, you know what? I'm not going to throw people away, but I am going to invite people in the conversation. So Brett, it started as an interview series where I was interviewing a lot of white women I knew um, about their relationships with power, privilege, and these systems of domination. Um, and then it grew into me facilitating workshops and I would host workshops and nobody would show up <laughs> and I would still do it and record it and just be, just be a space to teach and lead um, and now it's evolved into like a global brand um, where I work with all white folks um, on their journey, on their anti-racism journey. And now we have a podcast, we have books, workbooks, and global workshops. Why do you think it's resonating? Well, you know, with the death of our ancestor, George Floyd, it was that great awakening, right? We were already in COVID-19. Um, and it's resonating because we can no longer be blind. We can no longer pretend that we don't see what's happening. And we see that today with Breonna Taylor. It's resonating because people are ready to change. People are ready to have the conversation. Um, and if they're ready to engage in the conversation, that means they're ready to really engage in the work. What are the, what are the three, if there, I'm, I know there's a lot, but what are the one, two, three things you would say to the first white woman you speak to who has a question about this? Like, what's the starting point for you? Um, the starting point for me is, um, are you ready to step into this work? Are you ready to admit that you have been socialized to a level of privilege that um, consciously and unconsciously allows you to cause harm to people of color? That's one thing I would say. The second thing I would do is be ready to lean into your discomfort because this work isn't easy. It's behavior change 101. When you've been living with levels of privilege, you have to be ready to name that. You have to be able to call it out of yourself and you have to be able to, to work through that. Um, so be able to lean into the discomfort, the feelings, thoughts, and sensations on the journey. Um, and the third thing I would say is don't, don't do all the things. A lot of people get into this work and they start to um, you know, read 10 books in one week they start to become performative. So I would actually say, don't perform. Do this work because you're really ready to invest in a lifelong process of leaning in.
Do you find a lot of, I'm curious, do you find a lot of white people, forget women, but in general, who are supportive, but how to support? Yes, absolutely. Um, my friend has this quote, her name is Louise, and she says, whiteness cannot see itself. So there's a lot of what we call white centering, where they think they're doing the work, but they're actually making it about them. And it takes away from the real reason they need to engage in this work. It, it's the focus is on, oh, I was so racist and now I'm not racist. And if you want to be not racist, come hang out with me. Let's do it together. Um, and that's really not the goal of anti-racism work, the white centering and, and performative allyship that we see that happens globally. Your definition of white is what? Say it again. White guilt, your definition. <laughs> um, white guilt is an emotional response to a white guilt is a white person's emotional response to not responding in moments of injustice so it's basically the feelings you feel when you first awaken to saying oh my gosh I'm, I've been a racist my whole life and instead of you moving into doing the work you just feel the sense of shame and guilt and you disappear white silence White silence is violent. Um, white silence looks like seeing harm being caused to BIPOC communities and not saying anything. In, in, so, in moments like today with the ruling on Breonna Taylor, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you let it sink in and start over? You know what I mean? How do you, how do you not let it consume you? And, 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 do you know what I mean? How do you, how do you take that and use that so that it doesn't eat you up? I give up. I'm not, I can't, this is ridiculous. This is, you know what I mean? We're the, for the fight, for, for what it, for what's wrong. Yeah. Um, as a white person, this is a momentum moment for, for white folks. This is not a moment to lean into the guilt and the shame and to ghost or disappear. If you saw what happened today, if white folks saw that and they decided not to do anything, you've been performing the whole time. It's never been about the liberation for black lives. It's really been about you wanting to not appear racist to your seemingly black coworkers or your black friends. Um, so you use this moment to push you forward. You use this moment for political action and political activism to advocate for policy change on a higher level to make the phone calls, to support the bail funds that for people that are protesting. You use this moment to move forward. You push past the guilt. You know why? Us as Black folk, we've dealt with this for hundreds and thousands of years, and we have never been able to look away. And it's caused trauma and PTSD in our communities at disproportionate rates to our white counterparts. So for me, as an educator, as a Black woman, um, you know, Malcolm X said it, the most disrespected woman in America is the black woman. And so because I've seen it most my all of my life and my mom has seen it, my mom says the only difference now is that you guys can share it on social media. And so white folks, this is the time to lean in. Why do you think that aside from I don't, what makes you feel good? Because this is it, at the end of the day, you you want to fire, you want to change. What's at uh -huh. every day, what would be one thing that makes you, oh my God, I love, love what I'm doing, it makes me happy. 
You know, there's somebody who's been a part of this work with me for two years. What makes me happy is seeing the folks who have been doing it and they keep saying, I get this shit wrong every day and I keep showing up and I keep not keep trying to, you know, that's not talk good and bad binary, but I keep trying my best to be actively anti-racist. They, that, that, that's what actually pushes me forward. And not just that, but I also have the opportunity to take the funds of Check Your Privilege and provide therapy resources to black and brown folks and community circles. So what drives me is this piece of kind of being like a bridge. On one hand, I'm able to guide white folks. And on the other hand, there's like the support around mental health and empowerment for people of color. Connect the two. How do, why are they connected? Well, because it's healing on both, both lenses. So we say that your anti-racism journey is actually a healing journey because you're unlearning and you're relearning. And that's part of that hero's journey process. And so on one end, there's um, creating a space for white folks to come together, learn, be educated, take action, and then feel a sense of personal development and feel like they have the tools to push forward and resolve their issues around being racist. Um, and then on the other hand, for people of color, creating a therapy stipend for black folks, for indigenous folks to go and get therapy services to address trauma, to address harm. Um, the connection is the healing part. Do, do you think, you know, what, when, when I was growing up, when I think back to my parents' generation, or sorry, my, my generation growing up, you, you did not talk about mental health. That was not something. You hid your kids in your house. Right. You did, you, because that was not something that was public. And that's the sad It didn't exist. Yeah. There was no name for bipolar. There was no name for issues. There was no name for mental health, depression. There was no name for the change. Is it? Is it the stigma of, is it still to you the stigma of people just not releasing, not being open and honest, whether it's, it could be, I had a miscarriage or I'm having IVF or I'm, I, you know, uh, something, my kid is dyslexic, just not sharing and people not sharing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. It's, it's the stigma, right? So on one end you have folks, you know, there's generations, including my mom's generation. Um, they didn't talk about it. Yeah. You know, you sweep it under the rug, like, Oh, she's a little slow, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, we don't want to explicitly name it. But you have to call a thing a thing. And when you begin to name it, then you start to combat the stigma associated with it. So absolutely, that, that naming the issue, that calling it out, that, that having the understanding that you're living with it, it doesn't define you, helps eliminate the stigma associated, associated with it. Do you, you think, and it's still new. Do you think, because I'm always shocked. I'm always shocked. You hear, I remember the late... Uh, Oh, it, uh, uh, Dak Prescott just uh, on the Dallas Cowboys just came out talking about mental health. Like, mm -hmm. it's a strange thing when you think about it. It takes, it's still to that point that someone famous is like special for doing this. It shouldn't be special anymore. There's not enough people. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like, is that the first? 
art, meaning that it's just not out there, it's not happen? That is, it's, it's like, so it's still being sensationalized. It's not normal. And it is frustrating as an activist or someone who comes from generations of trauma to not have it normalized. Like it should be something that, that we talk about every day. Like we talk about brushing our teeth, we can talk about our feelings, you know what I mean? But we, we choose to just press in. And that's actually the depression is just pressing inward, pressing in those feelings and thoughts because, you know, we live in the world that tells you your feelings don't matter. So I remember taking a anti-anxiety depression pill like 20 years, I mean, for 20 years. And wow. best part of, I don't even, it doesn't matter if it works or not, but the best part was go see, and maybe you can appreciate this. You go to the, the doctor once, once every three months, yep. ask you the same list of questions and allowed me to think about as I'm riding in the taxi to him, how am I doing? Like taking stock of one's life. And that's yeah. no one does. Like that little thing, where am I? How am I actually doing? Like have yeah. a conversation with somebody else about me, how you're, like I think that's unbelievably healthy. Absolutely. That's a good thing. Like having, taking stop, pausing, having someone check in with you. How are you doing? Correct. And doing it repeatedly, like you were doing every three months. It's almost like when you get to like that third time of checking in, you're like, wow, I am doing okay. I do feel good. I, I can pause and check in with myself. That's a great feeling. That, that, that is kind of like the journey that leads into, um, self-discovery and, and living mentally well. Cause I same just like you, Brett, like I remember going and getting my medication and having them ask me that same question. And eventually because I checked in so many times, I was weaned off my medication because I, over time you learn the tools to just check in with yourself. How did, so, so how did Brown Sisters Speak start? How did that happen for you? Yeah, it was a school project <laughs> um, because I remember being in the mental health institution saying I would start something for black and brown women to talk openly about their mental health. And so my school project was on social entrepreneurship. Mm. And I said, okay, I'm going to create an organization called Brown Sisters Speak. We're going to walk around Oakland, California. We're going to give out mental health kits. It was, it was going to come with like some self-care items and like a list of phone numbers um, to therapists. Um, well, that didn't happen, but I got an A on the project and the teacher was like, go deeper, go get you a fiscal sponsor. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> so um, I did all the research. I got a fiscal sponsor and it started basically with me and Zoraida um, and a couple of other women just having conversations openly about mental health. Mm. So we would have these, we have a YouTube channel. You can see some of our old conversations around depression and then around um, infertility um, and how that affects your mental health. And it led to events in Oakland, women empowerment circles, sister circles. And then finally it was, we don't just need circles. We need access to healing, financial resources. So we started the Susie Hill therapy stipend, um, to give women, uh, 12 weeks of therapy services. And now we partner with therapy practices to offer therapy to black and brown women across the country. What, so, what makes you the most happy right now? What's making me the most happy right now? That's a good question. In lieu of what's happening in the world right now, I think what's making me the most happy is 
music, mm. particularly um, salsa music, Daddy Yankee, <laughs> um, and uh, BTS, the, the boys from South Korea. That's actually the music. Because, what, because they're putting you in a different mood? They take you somewhere else? Yeah. You know what they say about music, right? It, it gives you a hit of dopamine. So depending on the beats, the sound frequencies, it can like shift your vibration. So definitely into music right now. It gives me so much joy. Uh, uh, what did, I'm curious, what did you want when you, as a little girl, what did you want to be? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I used to tell, I was bullied because I was always the biggest girl in the school. And I would, I wanted to be Oprah. <laughs> I would tell kids who bullied me, you know what, you better be careful because one day I can give you a job and I might just be the next Oprah. That's what I wanted to be as a little girl. Who did inspire you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I've been watching Oprah Winfrey since I was five years old. Who else? So she absolutely. Who else has been inspired? Oprah. Oh yeah, Oprah, Iyamla, Maya Angelou, um, Bell Hooks. Oh, so many people inspired me. Felicia Rashad, Debbie Allen, um, Puff Daddy. Making the band was one of my shows of the early two thousands. What do they all have in common to you? The hero's journey. The story of finding purpose and defeat. The story of you have the ability to make your dreams come true. Yeah. Who, who's been there for you? Has anybody been there for you in, let's call it, nine, ten years ago to today? From nine, ten years ago to today, my mother has been there for me. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, my, yeah, my mom, like, she's been the road dog for the last 10 years. And, you know, as a woman, it, you know, it's not always like that with your mom. But you know what? You got to fall down a few times before you realize and recognize. That's the one person who's had my back this whole time. Did you, did you realize that? Because I, I, I freaking hated my mother growing up. She is my hero. She's my hero. You know, my father was like about him. My mother's my like, but I didn't yeah. appreciate it until later in life. Yep. I didn't appreciate it until when did I appreciate it? I didn't appreciate it until I remember what her face looked like when I was being taken to the mental health institution on a stretcher. That's when I realized it. Looking at my mom, looking at her face, and I could see her saying, like, what am I going to do? I've already done the mom thing. What am I going to do with these three kids? How, how, how am I going to take care of them? And from that moment, from the time I got out of the hospital, um, up until this point, she has just, I've recognized and realized so many things. You know, she didn't know what she knew as a mom. You know, so the things I hated her for, she didn't know how to tell me about it. She didn't know how to teach me. And life experience has taught me that, you know what? You don't know what you don't know. And when you can forgive someone, that's the path to healing. From a mental, I'm curious, Maisha, from a mental illness, how do you get somebody comfortable being honest? Just brutal honesty, like saying it about yourself. How do you, it, it, to me, it's the healthiest thing in the world, but the hardest thing. How do you do that? You know what? You, this is going to sound so fascinating. It's about listening. Creating a space to listen creating the space to listen empathically and to reflect back. That's what's been working for me. 
that's what continues to work for me, sitting down and I'm talking about feelings and observations and then having that reflected back to me allows me and others to feel that we can be brutally honest and have trust. Definitely a listening practice and definitely conversations to build relational trust. It's, it's, such, a, it's such an opposite thing when you think because you're expecting it to be you're the one who's dictating it, but you're not. It's you're the one listening. No. You're the one doing the least. Exactly. You're not, not the vocal work. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there's still emotional labor happening, right? But it's you're listening. And I think that's what people need is if you have someone who sits and can listen to you and, and you can hear yourself, it's almost as if you're finding like power within yourself just by being reflected back to and vice versa. Could, could you focus today on one, of, one thing, Brown Sisters Speak, or, or could you do that today? Could I focus on just one thing? Just one. No. Um, but I will say, I do have a personal goal to focus on Brown Sisters Speak. Because my community is hurting. Um, for, and for me, running a company with employees and managing people and their expectations and their own lives, well, what's the advice you give? You're managing people. So, you know, Brett, you got to start with what, what's your corporate culture? What are the agreements that are that speak to a space of inclusion and belonging? And how are you allowing your employees to be a part of that conversation? That's what we forget. We, we, we run companies and we think, well, I'm the boss and it's all about me and, and, and my goals and my metrics and what I need and my vision. But if you don't make space and make a seat at the table for the rest of the team, what are you doing? So, so I'm going to ask you, because I post today, that you put up, which, and I started following the trends on this whole topic. The Wells Fargo CEO. Yeah. So for, for anybody, he said, I'm going to quote, there's very, it's not an excuse, he said. Um, doesn't sound like an excuse, he said. There's very limited talent pool of black talent jobs. So putting aside what he said, if you could sit down with him, what would you do? I would actually, my first question would be, where are you on your anti, where are you on your anti-racism journey? When, when have you taken the time to really reflect on how you personally have caused harm to black folks? And where do your biases lie? Because that comment was, he might not think it was racist, but it was racist and it was spoken from, from his own biases. And it's his biases that get in the way from him being in real relationship with black folks. Because if you can't be in a real relationship across racial lines, then how do you think you can run an organization that is diverse and inclusive, but is not building on relational equity? Do you think, I think it is. I think that comment would fall across the top companies in the United States. Do you think that? Mm -hmm. That's the out? Wait, say it one more time. That That, that is persistent in all companies is that oh yeah absolutely that's the mindset 
you know, we, you know, there's assimilationists and there's anti-racists. There's not space for anti-racists in organizations. Um, and they're, these companies are mostly looking for assimilationists, which are people who uphold white supremacy in their organizations. Hmm. Um, and ways that that happens, you know, there's this document, Brett, I'll send it over to you guys, but it's called White Supremacy Culture. And that's the notion of perfectionism, all or nothing thinking, the sense of urgency, um, good, bad binary, progress is better or more. And so if companies aren't looking at the ways that white culture, white supremacy cultures is influencing their organization, of course, comments like that are normalized. It's, it's amazing. I can imagine, you think about, as you're constantly thinking about this, it's so easy to find the next cause because there's so many verticals you could support. You know what I mean? There's so yep. that can be its yep. entity. Yep. Absolutely. It's so many things. What I tell people, what I continue to tell people on their journeys, if it's anti-racism, is you got to niche down. So if there's one thing that drives you as a person, let that one thing be resonant for you on your journey for like 90 days, right? So maybe you love the Black Lives Matter movement. Focus on that and let that be resonate. What's next for you? What's your, do you, have, do you set goals? Do you set time frames? What's next? Yes. What's next for the rest of this year? Uh, I have another book coming out next month. Congrats. <laughs> um, but what's next for me in 2021 is just more community building. More, more work with Brown Sisters Speaking, securing funding so that I can give my mother a new full-time job as an administrator for Brown Sisters Speak. So that is actually a big goal that I have set for 2021. Do you, do you look past that? Or is it kind of setting that intermediate goals to get? I have to be honest with you. I had so many goals set, then COVID-19 happened, and it's just like, I don't even have time for goals. Like I have them and I look at them over 90, over like periods of 90 days. Um, but at this point, Brett, I don't because COVID-19 is proving that no matter what goal you set, can I really depend on that metric? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. My issue, yep. before we end, which has been fantastic, I, I, I want to do what I do with everybody. So it's word is okay. Word association. One word. I'm going to ask you ten, one word. Do best with one word. Ten things, one word. Try to say one word. Try. Okay. Well, ready? First word, wellness. Life. Healing. Birthright. Empowerment. Self-love. Love. Privilege. Check. Oakland. Hello. Black Lives Matter. Daily. Mother. Nurturing. Sisterhood. Necessary. Co-conspirator. Partner. Vote. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maisha, uh, again, I think it's, you know, uh, for me, it's, I'm not you, I'm not you, but this, the idea, I'd like to be you in the sense of, of finding 
I'm finding my own voice and trying to use my own voice to speak to people and share stories, mm -hmm. share wisdom, and and share more honesty. I think everyone in life gets to a point where you start doing that. You just start. Yeah. I mean, just start doing it. But it's the healthiest thing in the whole world. And I'm so proud of you. Never met you, but you're on. It's inspiring. It's infectious. It makes you want to be more honest. And I think it's a gift that that is that that you're giving everybody. And I get it. I get it. Uh, I, I appreciate what you're doing. We'll support you. Continue to support you. Um, uh, and we'll continue to tell our fans because that's what it's about trying to support others and, and find wisdom. But I thank you for the conversation, really. Thank you for guys for having me. It was an absolute gift to be here. I appreciate it. Thank Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye.